Well, amen. Since our God reigns, let's go to his word this morning. Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 6, is where we will be at. Acts chapter 6. If I reigned, I would not open the Bible. I would just talk to you about my own ideas. Or if you reigned, we would read your letters, your book. But God reigns, amen? So we've got to be focused, rooted on the Bible. If you are new to the Bible, uh, just simply go to the table of contents in the front of the, uh, the book and find the page number for Acts. And we are in Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at six verses, and I should say that in your bulletin, the, um, if you take notes, the, the text is, is wrong. It's Acts 6, 1 through 6, not what it says in the bulletin. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good report, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, a man full of, uh, uh, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning through his word. Father, we do ask you to do just that. Speak to us, God. This is your word, which you revealed through the hand of man, but it is at the same time a divine document as it has uh, been given to us communicating your inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. God, as we study this narrative this morning, as we study this story, I pray, God, that you would inspire us toward greater faithfulness and service. God, may I preach your word, not my own, Open our hearts that we might receive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to preach on the, on the theme this morning, trouble and solution. Trouble and solution. Churches have problems. Amen? Someone recently said that, talking about some different issues going on in some different churches, and, and, I, and uh, they, they said to me, churches have problems, and, and I, I felt no need to correct them. You know, this, this uh, defensive 
nature that I have toward the church, I just sort of declined that kind of defensive posture and just simply agreed. Churches have problems. If, if you are uh, looking for a church that has no problems, you won't find it. Churches, yes, filled with redeemed people, but people who are still being sanctified. Sanctification is a lifelong process. So don't ever give up on any local church, and then also God's church as a whole, simply because there are problems. If you want a church with no problems, there is actually one, and that church is in heaven. So unless you're trying to hurry to that church, just recognize that you're going to have some problems on earth. And I'm not going to try to hurry you there either. When we get there, we will rejoice, all right? But I'm not going to help you get there any quicker than the Lord has already determined for your life. So I want to talk to you then on the topic, trouble and uh, solution. There's a problem that the church faces and the apostles come up with a solution. That is the simple outline of our text this morning. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. Now, they're growing. Church growth. Uh, We can praise God for church growth. Amen? However, we should also recognize that with church growth comes... Additional, come on, problems, exactly. My daughter, Jaden, all through elementary school and middle school, uh, would talk about growing pains. Do you remember this, Jess? She would say, ah, my growing pains. I've got growing pains. I can't walk. I've got growing pains. (laughs) It's all she talked about. And the reality is, is my daughter is tall, and she probably had a lot of growing pains during those years. When we grow, there are pains, all right? Uh, We can call these growing pains that we are seeing in the church in Acts. I could actually title the sermon Growing Pains. That might be a little more catchy. But we're going to stick with trouble and solution, all right? Um, uh, Growing pains are a natural result of more people coming together because, again, these people are redeemed, but they are not completely sanctified. And so there's trouble within. Now, the text... Acts 6, 1 through 6, is uh, sandwiched with persecution on either side. So as chapter 5 ends, what do we see? Persecution coming from the Jewish leaders from the outside. And then as we go into uh, chapter 7, what do we see? More persecution. Stephen, one of the first deacons here, Stephen is going to be killed. He's going to be murdered. So persecution is capping both sides of this text, and at the, at the center of this persecution sandwich is what? Trouble within. So we see the first church, the very first church, as soon as they're getting together, has trouble on the outside, and they also have trouble on the inside. There are two contributing factors that are creating problems within the church. Number one, There are new residents in Jerusalem. The church in Acts began as a multicultural church. 
Now, praise God for church growth. Amen? Amen. Praise God for a multicultural church. Amen? Amen? But don't think that a multicultural church is going to be a nice little pie in the sky, uh, uh, easy little thing to get along with, as if there are going to be no problems. In this first multicultural church, they immediately have multicultural problems. Now, remember the history of the church here. In Acts chapter 2, there were people from Jerusalem that were present, but there were also people from all over the known world. Cappadocia, Asia, Libya, Cyrene. They're coming from all over. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, fills the church, and you've got probably hundreds, if not a thousand or more replants, people who were visiting Jerusalem, that now decide to stay from all over the world. So the first church was not just Jerusalemites, but they were people from all over, different languages and different cultures. Now this created an immediate need for a great relief ministry. Why? Well, because you have all of these replants. People who have left their homes, they've left their jobs, they've left, left behind everything in order to be part of the church so they don't have a home, they don't have any food, they don't have any job. And by the way, in this culture, there are no food stamps and there's no uh, 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 Section 8 or public housing. Uh, there are, is very little safety net. And so literally, if the church doesn't provide for these hundreds of replants, everybody's going to start starving to death. Um, and so they begin to do what? We've already seen this in Acts 2 and Acts 4. They're selling things, and it's just this massive relief budget because there are so many needs in a very unique situation, all right? Meaning, like, if we had a 1,000 people from all over the world come here for some reason and join our church, we, pro- we too would probably be like, oh my gosh, like, everybody's got to be, like, piling into houses and selling a car to provide some food for somebody and like because there's a specific very all all that to say they had a very big relief fund are you tracking with me as part of this relief fund we don't have the details but there was some kind of widow's fund there was some kind of widow's budget uh, particularly for those who were in need uh, those who were widows now if we skip forward uh, in fir- to 1 Timothy 5, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we also see a widow's budget or a list of widows that the church is providing for. And there are stringent conditions of the, uh, for those who can be a recipient of those funds. They must be at least 60 years old uh, or older. Uh, They must have proven themselves with godliness. They must be a true widow, meaning there's nobody else in their family that can be providing for them or helping helping them. All that to say, as we see this, this widow's budget, we've got to understand this isn't just simply a handout budget. This isn't just a budget just to give to anybody that comes along and says they need $3 for this or that. This isn't just a a simple budget to just give uh, to anybody who otherwise should be providing for themselves, but rather there are strict uh, conditions that are attached to who receives uh, these kind of funds. Now, just really quickly, as we think of this sort of stuff in our own church, um, we've got a relief budget in our own church, which last year literally gave away thousands of dollars 
uh, to pay mortgages and to buy food for people and bus passes and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but we, too, follow a biblical precedent for being careful as to who we just give money to. Because, you, 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 I mean, there's, there's the reality that you could enable somebody who otherwise, the Bible says, should be working. And if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. We could enable somebody uh, to just simply get into a handout mentality, a handout culture, which actually hurts them and doesn't help them. Uh, so we've got to be careful here as we think of how to apply these things in a day and age where there are uh, uh, a lot of reasons as to why we need to be careful about handouts. Does that make sense? And so as we think about a, a relief ministry in our church, we need to have relief for those who truly need relief. But we can't, if we're not careful with it, we're going to give money to people that don't really need it, and those that really need it can't have it. Does that make sense? So I, I know of a church uh, in D.C. that literally has a list of older widows that they support. Like they give them monthly groceries, they give them rent money, uh, because what they have coming from the government just isn't enough to cut it, and they literally have committed for the rest of the, the, these widows' lives the, their support of them. But they've got to be over 60, they're proven godliness, like they're actually just following the Bible, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, and, and so they're careful, but when they realize, like, no, this person really needs relief, what do they do? They give the whole gamut. And I think that's kind of a biblical approach that we see here being played out. Um, now, going on, so first of all, there's this issue of a particular need. And that's what, uh, let me back up. That's what I'm trying to get at here, is, is there's a particular need that is driving uh, this issue. And that, that is the fact that there are tons of replants and also, there is no security net, no safety net provided. And so there is real relief issues that are needed in the church. Number two, the second issue here, is that there is a new tension because of the, the diversity in the church. Because of the multicultural nature of the church, there is new tension that, is, uh, that, that, that comes up. Now, again, praise God for a multicultural church, right? But... We've got to recognize that that does come with new tensions and challenges and troubles. So, in this church, there is a sharp distinction between two categories of people, people the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Now, they're, they're both Jews, but the Hebrews would be people who were probably Jerusalemites, or they grew up in Israel right there. They speak Hebrew, they've got Jewish customs and language, culture, all of that. That's the Hebrews, or in other words, uh, would be the Hebraic Jews. The Hebrews. Everybody say Hebrews, just so I know you're tracking with me. And then the other group would be the Hellenists. Everybody say Hellenists. The Hellenist group would be, uh, would be these replants. This is why I bring up this issue of new people in Jerusalem. Because they are people not from Jerusalem. They're not from Israel. They are from all over the known Greek world. And so they have Greek customs and cultures and languages. And so they have come, and they're now this multicultural church together as one, but it's posing new challenges. 
Now, we can also assume two things. Number one, that the Hebrews looked down on the Hellenists. Why would I say that? Well, Paul himself said that he was, in his former state, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that was something to be proud of. Uh, and, and, and so th- we, we have to understand that they, it was likely, uh, the, uh, the fact w- was likely that they, the Hebrews were looking down on the Hellenists. Secondly, is the fact that the Hebrews uh, had the control, they were in the majority, and they were, uh, had control over who gets to eat. <laughs> Come on, hold up, hold up. I haven't started yet. I'm still trying to get there. So look at Acts 6, verse 1. Here's the complaint. The complaint comes by the Hellenists. It arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That word neglected is, literally means in the Greek to see something and to look past it. To see something and to look over it. Uh, it, it, it is the word to disregard. It's not as if they, it was an accident, but it was an intentional disregard of the Hellenist widows. And those who had the power to feed them did not feed them. Now remember, God's people, we've covered this recently, God's people was called to be a people of justice in the Old Testament, and that was to be played out in the church, that God's righteousness and justice should be seen in the church. Immediately, what do we see happening in the first century church? Injustice. Now, before we get to what the apostles said, it's just as important to note what they did not say. The apostles did not say, just preach the gospel. Now pause. These were the best gospel preachers there were. All right? These are the apostles. Like, who are your favorite preachers? If we could have heard them, we probably would list these, these 12 guys. Like, they knew the gospel. They knew how to preach the gospel. Yet, with the best gospel preaching in the church, there was still sin. There were still problems that had to be dealt with by hands, all right? Secondly, the apostles also did not say, let's just focus on good doctrine. As if we focus on good doctrine and all of the other problems will work itself out. Well, look, they had good doctrine. All right, they had the theologians. The faith is built on the apostles. They were also, check this out, the church was also doctrinally united. We saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that they were in one accord. Like, this wasn't a doctrinally divided church. They all came together on good, sound doctrine. So what what do we learn from this? Well, doctrinal soundness does not safeguard the church against sin. And this is really important, particularly as we think about America or uh, uh, churches that, that we may have uh, come from or, or even some of the most praised theologians of our past, as we realize that some of the most, some of those that were best on articulating the gospel, some of those that were best on doctrinal issues, were completely blind 
to some other issues, such as slavery, completely blind, and owned slaves. How is that possible? I think we need to be humble and to recognize that, yes, the devil has uh, strategies for gospel-less churches, but the, the, the devil also has strategies for gospel-centered churches. The devil has strategies for doctrinally light churches. And the devil also has strategies for doctrinally robust churches. I'm just saying, church, we need to be humble and to recognize that with all of our gospel centrality, with all of our doctrine, that we too could have sin in the camp. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be aware of the fact that we too may have blind spots in the way that we love or do not love one another. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am a gospel guy. <laughs> don't come at me. Um, the gospel has the, is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. I recently read an article that Eric sent me about a, a man who was part of the KKK that was saved and repented and completely transformed by the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I'm just simply saying that sanctification is slow, and we've got to be humble. Now, what does this mean? It means that we don't just simply relegate all issues to the pulpit ministry, but we have to use our hands. There are physical needs in the church that have to be dealt with with wisdom and with spiritual maturity. So, trouble in the church, problem. The apostles immediately bring a solution. Problem, solution. The solution is in an office what we now call the deacons or the deacon board or the diaconate or whatever you want to call them. The deacons. This deacon ministry was birthed in the labor pains of a multicultural church. This deacon ministry was launched in the face of injustice. This deacon ministry was forged in the heat of church drama. And so let's look at this solution. There was a dilemma opposed to the apostles, and the apostles immediately made a decision. And the decision is a deacon. Now, that word deacon, everybody say deacon. Diakonos is the Greek word. It's a noun that literally means servant or minister. The word or the noun is not used here in the text, but the verb is. So the verb deaconing or ministering is used throughout this text. As the New Testament goes on, what we see is that this prototype deacon is uh, transformed into an actual office in the church. So you have elders, and then you have deacons, Philippians 1.1. There are elders and deacons that are in the church, and what we are looking at now is the prototype of the deacon office. So, we can look at this and we can learn. There's a lot we can learn here about who deacons are, what deacons do, uh, and and in particular, why it is so important for us to handle the physical needs of 
the church. So first, who are the deacons? Who are the deacons? I want to break this down into four different categories, call, character, competency, and commission. First, let's look at the deacon's call. Who are the deacons? Verse 2. It says the twelve, that would be a reference to the apostles. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So here they, what they do is they call together a members meeting. And they say, all right, 5,000 people or more, let's come together and we've got to have a members meeting. They, they, they don't take this problem and just simply place it in the corner. They don't uh, tuck the trouble away into an apostles meeting. And deal with it there. But they actually bring the whole matter before the whole church because a physical need, even if it's one physical need in the church, is a whole church problem. And so they bring the issue before the church in a members' meeting and they first of all say it's not right that we should give up something to do this. This is the foundation for why there are there is a need for other people to serve. It is not right, they say, that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. That word, it is not right, is the word inappropriate, which means it would be morally wrong if they were to give up preaching the Word of God in order to meet physical needs. This isn't a preference issue. It's not as if the disciples are saying, hey, we don't prefer this kind of work, or this is beneath us. It's not as if the apostles are saying, hey, uh, you know, we are more important than this kind of work. No, they're saying that there's a moral issue at stake, and that is this, that they are called to serve the Word of God and to pray, look at verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That word ministry right there is the word deacon. To the deaconing of the Word. Meaning the deacon role is not beneath the apostles, but they are called to a particular kind of deaconing that cannot be neglected. And that is the proclamation of God's Word. The, 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 the ministry of the Word, and also to prayer. And if they were to uh, take on all of the physical needs in the church, what they're saying is, is that we would be morally at fault because we're neglecting this very important task that we've been given. Now, the apostles, in some ways, are prototype elders, in 2 Timothy 4.2, we see very similar role given to the elders, where they are called to do what? Preach the word, in season and out of season. In 1 Peter chapter 5, elders are called to shepherd the flock in such a way that they can spiritually present uh, the flock to the chief shepherd, and that is Jesus Christ. And so elders, too, must recognize that they have to uh, focus on the word ministry, on the spiritual needs of the flock. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 3, the one qualification that elders have that deacons don't have is, for those of you that have been coming on Wednesdays, apt to teach. Uh, 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 elders must be able to teach the word of God. And so then what do deacons do? Well, on one hand, we could say that deacons free 
the elders up to focus on the ministry of the word. That's one aspect. But the other aspect, what do they do in a concrete fashion? In, in the original text here, they're, they're literally making sure that tables have food on them. Uh, they, are, they are looking over these tables. They are making sure that the Hellenistic uh, widows are fed and have what they need. They're meeting physical needs. Now, there are multiple tables in any church. Things that are physical needs that could very well distract the elders from the Word of God, which deacons need to recognize, like, hey, this is a, this is a table. The church needs to recognize this is a table that somebody needs to focus on, meaning it's important. We don't neglect physical needs. They're very important. And so what are some tables? Well, tables in today's church, in our church, could be widows. Maybe there's a situation in which uh, somebody genuinely needs help on an ongoing, regular basis. And that is a table that needs attending. Another person might need housing. That is a table that needs attending. Uh, someone else may have lost their job due to COVID and can't pay their mortgage or their rent. That is a table that needs attending. Who handles the finances of the church? Who is it that sets up the space so that we can gather together and worship God? Uh, these are all tables that need attending. Kids would be a table that needs attending. Are we caring for the kids in the church? Uh, and, and, and that is something that we need to focus on. So for us, we have deacons then of benevolence. We've got deacons of uh, uh, children. We've got deacon of finance. We've got deacon of worship services. And, and there's probably a number of other tables that we will be creating deacons for as we grow as a church. So first, this is their call. This is their function meeting physical needs, overseeing physical needs uh, in the church. Secondly, let's look at their character in verse 3. What kind of people are called to this position? Therefore, he says, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, which we will appoint to this duty. Now, he, these are not just any old men that can fulfill this role. He doesn't say, hey, just go find anybody uh, that, that would, like to, would like to do this. He, he gives spiritual qualifications for who is able to fulfill such an important role. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, we see the further breakdown of the qualifications for deacons, which Eric led us through at this last uh, Wednesday night's Bible study. They are to be spiritually qualified, and they are remarkable people. So Stephen, for instance, we're going to see him next week as he stands up boldly and becomes the first martyr in the early church. Philip the very next chapter, we're going to see him. He's called an evangelist as he goes and boldly takes the gospel elsewhere as the church scatters and, and shares the gospel of Jesus Christ with an Ethiopian eunuch. These are not just worldly people performing worldly tasks. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
But there's a spiritual nature to this task, and it requires spiritual maturity in meeting the task. Meaning, give me a spiritually mature person any day over somebody that just simply knows how to perform the task. You know, you might have somebody in the church that's better at team building, but they're not spiritually qualified to be a deacon. And if you take that person just simply because they're good with the skill and put them into this position, what's going to happen in the church? It's going to be a disaster because we're dealing with spiritual issues in the church. There's a spiritual nature that must be required of maturity. And so give me the guy that's spiritually mature any day over the guy that just simply knows how to put a spreadsheet together. Because you can teach skills to somebody, but you can't teach teach spiritual maturity. That is something that has to happen through the Holy Spirit of God working in them. So there is a a certain kind of character that is required. Verse 3, let me read it. He says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Spiritual qualifications. Number three, they are also to be competent. There's a level of cultural competency that's required. Look at verse 5. As they choose these men, it says they chose Philip, or Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas. Now, these names are all Greek names, meaning they chose people of which community? The Hellenist community. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to recognize that as they think about this issue with the Hellenistic Jews, that they choose Hellenist deacons to oversee and to make sure that this need is met. If I could put this into uh, uh, terms that we might be more familiar with, let's say that there is an Asian church uh, that was majority Chinese, and there was an issue where the Korean widows were being overlooked. They chose seven Korean deacons to make sure that the task happens. Does that make sense? Meaning there's a certain kind of cultural competency that is expected uh, and that that actually matters. Uh, Context matters. Culture matters. Matters. Now, the application for us could be a hundred different things, and I can't spend a whole bunch of time on it, but just, for, uh, just to kind of boil it down, uh, uh, competency matters. Meaning, in a, with our own deacons, like if Raymond, uh, who's our deacon of finance, was not competent with numbers, that would not be a good thing. All right? If uh, Don and Troy, who oversee our relief budget, if they were not competent with wisdom on thinking through this sort of, sort of stuff, then that would not work well. If we bring on somebody who's a a deacon of children's ministry and they just don't like kids, uh, they've never been one, you know, um, that would not work well. If Mike Afalabi just hated the worship service and we made him deacon of worship services, that probably would not work well. There's a certain kind of competency that is required. Again, character first, competency second, but competency matters because the job is important. And if they're not competent, the job isn't going to get done. And now you're back to the same problem. Needs are not being met. All right, number four. Number four is they're commissioning. Let's look at that in verse three 
in verse 6. So therefore, brothers, he says, pick out from among you these seven men, he gives the qualifications, and then he says this, whom we will appoint to this duty. So there is some kind of congregational affirmation, but then also an appointing to the duty by the apostles themselves, whom we will appoint to this duty. Meaning the deacon role is a role of stewardship. In the same way that Joseph received stewardship over uh, Potiphar's house and then eventually over all of Egypt under Pharaoh, he received that stewardship. It wasn't his own. It was a delegated kind of authority. So, for instance, Pharaoh said, hey, Joseph, you've had this dream. There's famine that's going to come. Can you make sure that we've got adequate storehouses? Joseph is given a delegated authority over that physical need underneath Pharaoh. Does that make sense? And also we can note that Joseph wasn't required, or, or there's no way that Joseph was in every field plucking every head of grain. Meaning when you oversee something in a delegated authority kind of way, uh, there's probably a number of people that you're overseeing in that task. We could take that straight back here. There are seven deacons chosen. We can only assume that there are probably hundreds of table waiters. These men are not doing all of the work. But they are overseeing it, making sure that it's happening. So there is a certain kind of authority that they have, but it's a delegated authority underneath the, uh, the apostles. Now this is important to understand, this delegated authority, because in some churches today, maybe you've, been, you've experienced this, and I certainly have in my own past, the deacon board can sometimes operate in competition with the pastors. Almost like the Congress and the Senator, the President and the Senator, you know, there's sort of this checks and balances where the pastor's saying this and the elders are saying this, but the deacons come along and say this. In no way does that make any sense. The deacons are to handle certain kind of delegated authority from the leaders of the church, certain issues uh, that are part of the, the elders' responsibility and oversight and then they give certain things, a.k.a. tables or physical needs, to the deacons so that these things might be handled. And then they lay their hands on them in verse 6. They set, the, uh, set them before the apostles. They prayed. They laid their hands on them. And they were sent to do the work. Now, I've been doing a lot of teaching. And I feel like preaching now. <laughs> What does all of this represent? Why, why should we care about service in the church? Let's just take a step back. Why should the church care that physical needs are met? Why should the church care about issues of injustice within the church itself? Why should the church embrace a name an office, a title such as servant or deacon, minister. Well, it's because the church is to represent Jesus to the world. The church is to represent the heart of God to the world. And that is one of service and love. 
You know, every Christmas we see all the celebrities and the NBA players and the NFL players serving, right? They get their photo op and they get, they get in the soup kitchen and they're on, they're on the news. Like all the stuff that you do 365 days of the year, that never made it on the news, all right? But all of a sudden, some celebrity is behind the camera serving, getting all the applause. Doesn't that kind of irritate you a little bit? You're like, hold up, buddy. (laughs) But here's the thing. And I don't mean to get on the NFL or anybody, but I'm just going to say straight up, the world likes to serve when the cameras are on. And we're we're not too different. I mean, let's just be honest. Without Jesus Christ, I would only serve you when people were looking. (laughs) All right? Without Jesus Christ, I I would only preach when I'm getting applause, not when I'm getting critique. But see, with Jesus Christ, we say it doesn't matter if the cameras are on. With Jesus Christ, we say, look, it doesn't matter if I'm getting applause. I want to serve because that displays Jesus. You see, the hypocrites, religious hypocrites, only serve when it seems to elevate their status. The world only serves when it seems to give them applause. But Christians serve because we display who Jesus is. Well, how, do we, how does service, let's back up, how does service display who Jesus is? In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus is rebuking the religious hypocrites. And, and he, he's looking at his disciples. He's looking at the crowds. And, he, and he's rebuking the religious leaders of the day. And he says, look, everything they do is done for people to see. They love the religious clothing. They love the places of honor. They love all of the fancy greetings in the marketplace. But you, now he's turning to the Christians. He's turning to, the, to, his, to his disciples, prototype Christians. But you, he says, he says, the greatest among you must be a deacon. That's the word. The greatest among you will be your servant, the one who serves. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Look, let's just pause for a moment. This word deacon is, is, a, is a general term that means servant or minister that eventually becomes an official office. But it's a general term that we should all aspire to, to serve. Jesus himself says, or he asks this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Is it not he who serves? And so therefore, we should want to outdo each other in love, as it, the Bible says. Like, what if that was our competition? What if that was our competition? My buddy Tyler in this church, he has a piece of paper on, on his wall uh, with names of people that he wants to beat in uh, one-on-one basketball. And uh, my name is on that list. And it will never leave that list. He has beat me in a team game, but not yet one-on-one. We've never played, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> um, but but what, if, like, what if all of us, though, had like lists 
on our wall of names of like, you know, Mike Afalabi, Kwame Kuta, Jody Haygood, all right, I'm a, Logan Blaster, look around the room here, Michael White, and we're like, I'm gonna outdo these people in love. I'm gonna outserve these people. Like, that's the kind of competition that the Bible calls us to. Like, w- what we get excited about in the church is not accolades, but trying to outdo each other in service. Trying to outserve one another. Now, Jesus' disciples can preach. We can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus' disciples can lay down their lives for one another. I personally can be called to be a pastor and to shepherd the flock and to, and to bring sermons about Jesus every week. But let me ask you this question. Who in this room can outserve Jesus? You see, as much as Jesus tells us why we serve, Jesus is also telling us something about who he is. So in Romans chapter 15, Jesus himself is called a deacon, a servant, one who gives his life. You see, the Son of Man church did not come to be deaconed, but he came to deacon. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but he came to, or to be served, but he came to serve. How did he serve us? It says he gave his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom means a sin payment, uh, meaning there was a payment for my sin that was required of God, and Jesus came and paid that debt. The curse that was on us because of Adam was reversed when Jesus died on the cross for his people. The sin that condemned us to hell was paid by Jesus. Nobody can outserve Jesus. Though Jesus had all of the riches of glory, he gave it up and was born in servant quarters. He was born in a manger where servants would spend the night watching the sheep. Previously wrapped in glory, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Jesus did not live his life in luxury, but rather Jesus lived his life traveling from place to place with no place to lay his head, serving the least of these. And when it came time for dinner, Jesus took the servant robe and wrapped it around his own waist and washed the feet of his disciples. Nobody can outserve Jesus. And when the royal robe was finally placed on his shoulders, it was only done in mockery. When they placed a sign above his head that read, King of the Jews, it was only done in jest. And when a crown was placed on his head, it wasn't a crown of gold, but rather it was a crown of thorns. And when he was lifted up, he was not lifted up on a throne, but he was lifted up on a tree. The greatest display of service in that moment as Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom, was put on display. He was put on display for all to see naked, beaten, and bloodied. I'm telling you, nobody can outserve Jesus. And three days later, when 
the earth could no longer keep him, when the grave could no longer hold him, when Jesus got up, he kept on serving for 40 days. He was meeting with his, uh, his, his apostles, his disciples. He was training them. For uh, 40 days, he was offering forgiveness to people like Peter, who so badly turned his back on him. Offering forgiveness, not just to Peter, but to any and all who would come and turn to him. He then uh, said, I'm going to send a helper who's going to come to you. And as Jesus ascended, he, he commissions his disciples to take this message into all of the world, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus ascended, the church was catapulted into the world. Nobody can outserve Jesus. But he still wasn't finished serving. For the past 2,000 years, Jesus intercedes on behalf of us. The reason the Father hears our prayers is because Jesus is interceding for us. For the last 2,000 years, He's been representing His people. He serves currently, today, as your high priest. And He advocates on your behalf. Meaning, you need somebody to plead your case before God. And Jesus has been serving you in that role for 2,000 years. Nobody can outserve Jesus. But it's still not over. He's coming again. He's coming again on a white horse with the army of saints. And when he comes, it says that we will be caught up together with him in the cloud, transformed, coming to earth, the remaking of all the creation where we will serve with Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's he who is the servant the deacon, Jesus Christ himself, and nobody can out-serve Jesus. You see, problem and solution. Trouble and solution. The greatest is the one who comes along with the best solution for the worst trouble. We had the biggest problem. Curse, sin debt before an eternal holy God. And Christ came as the solution. Our greatest problem was sin. Our greatest solution is our Savior. And so therefore, He is the greatest. That's why we say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive riches and power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. Nobody can outserve Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and the way that he served us. God, we pray that as we seek to be a church that represents Jesus to the world, that we would serve each other well. We thank you for the gift of deacons, a particular class of people that you have given the church so that we might serve the physical needs within this church of one another. God, give us wisdom with our deacon ministry. I pray our deacons would serve well. And I pray that together as a church, as we operate in this way, that we will display to the world who the greatest really is. And that is Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.